You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and it is great to be talking to Peter Pitts from the Center for Medicine in the public interest. And I spoke to Peter last week after we had the question from Elizabeth uh, related to, uh, you know, medicines from China and how all of that works and the concern that people have that we don't have basic medicines here that we have to depend upon the Chinese. So I reached out to Peter. I learned a lot about the process. And I said, would you come on and talk about it? Because this was a question that our our listeners had. Peter, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm I'm fine. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. First of all, just explain to folks how, just kind of the basics of how we do pharmaceuticals in America. And then when foreign countries are involved, how they're involved. Sure. Well, when it comes to the manufacturing of the pharmaceuticals that we pick up at the pharmacy or we get through the mail, those are finished pharmaceuticals ready for us to swallow and address our medical conditions. But medicines, especially pills and tablets and biologics, What's equally important is the component parts of them and how they're manufactured. Now, every medicine that's legal for sale in the U.S. is manufactured in a facility that is inspected and approved by the FDA, whether it's here in the U.S. or in some other country overseas, such as China. So the issue is, how can we be sure that the Chinese, for example, couldn't, couldn't hold us hostage, couldn't deny life-saving, life-saving medicine to be sent to the U.S., and that's a legitimate concern. So, uh, obviously, so it's a piece of the drug. So when we read articles that said most of our antibiotics are made in China, that was not totally true. It was that the component we need to make the antibiotic is made in China. It's actually both. Some of the actual finished antibiotics are manufactured in China, and a lot of times it's the component parts of those antibiotics that are made in China. So it's it's both things, and both need to be addressed to make sure that we can uh, control our own destiny when it comes to the essential medicines that we need here at home. So do you think something like having a, you know, a, a floor, a threshold, maybe that 25% of, of X drugs ought to be produced here so that we always know that we have a supply no matter what happened? And if that's a good idea, how would you go about putting that into place? I think we really have to seriously start thinking about it. So the first thing we'd have to do, obviously, is understand, you know, what the supply chain looks like. How many medicines, how much of the active pharmaceutical ingredients of those medicines, you know, are coming into the U.S. from foreign countries. And once we understand that, which we don't have a handle on right now, by the way, and we have to, then we can decide, well, of these 300 medicines, 50 need to be a guaranteed supply. We need to look beyond China, for example, to our European allies, to the Abraham Accord countries, you know, manufacturing here at home, because, you know, it's not as though manufacturing for medicines in the U.S., there's no idle space. All of our all of our factories are running at, at full tilt. Do we need to build more factories? What, what are the combination of strategies here? But you're right. It definitely begins with identifying what those medicines are and identifying the priority uh, products that need to be focused on. 
And look, I think in a lot of areas, we have paid a very high price for wanting cheap goods. And I understand capitalism, you you know, you get the best price, you, you look where it is, and I'm all for a world market, Peter. I think that that's all a part of what we do. But I do think one of the lessons we learned from the pandemic is that there ought to be certain things that we know are made and produced and available here in the United States, or at least with a very friendly partner at a moment's notice. I agree with that. You know, my grandmother used to say, sometimes a bargain is too expensive. And you make a good <laughs> point, which is, you know, I'm a free market guy as well. But, you know, when you outsource essential products to a country that is, how to put it politely, mercurial, such as China, you know, we're taking a risk and we have to decide whether that's a risk worth, worth taking. And if it's not, how do we mitigate that risk? So when you um, look at the pharmaceutical world that we live in right now, I mean, obviously, the United States of America, in many ways, is the leader of finding new drugs. Uh, and I think a lot it's in large part because we do still have a free market on retail prices. Uh, we, we aren't we're probably the last developed country that doesn't have some kind of socialized medicine scheme where the drug prices are set. Now, we're getting closer to that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the reconciliation bill that I haven't read through yet that have to do with Medicare negotiating prices and all that sort of thing. But I do think we do develop the best meds. We do get them in there. And um, and I don't want to sacrifice that. But I also want to make sure people are getting the best prices on things. Of, of course, you know, you know, there's a reason why new innovative medicines are largely developed and approved first and available uh, in the United States. And that's because we reward innovation. Uh, price controls equal choice controls. And when you, when you limit people's choices, you take away the incentives for investing in this, in this very high-risk industry called pharmaceuticals. Most drugs never make it to market, and only a few of those that do make it to market ever make back their uh, research and, and development costs. I think that we, if we say, listen, we're willing to say as of this moment forward, there'll be no more new drugs at all and we'll lower prices. That doesn't work for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 63 years old. I want new drugs. I want new opportunities, as do many people who have no choices now whose conditions are not treated by pharmaceuticals. So, you know, when people say my drugs are too expensive, like politicians are keen to say, what they generally mean is my copay at the pharmacy is too expensive. And this reconciliation bill does absolutely nothing to reduce uh, co-pays when a patient goes to the pharmacy, whether you're on Medicaid or Medicare or whether you're paying through private insurance. It's a, it's a travesty. It's, it's, it's not telling the truth. We're talking to Peter Pitts from the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest. I, I wanted to ask you a question, and if you don't know this, it's perfectly okay. Um, I am very concerned about the level of advertising on prescription drugs and not that i don't think you know that that they should be allowed to advertise but i get concerned about the the amount of dollars they're spending on advertising for what seems to be a drug for a very small market you know they'll advertise some special drugs for for bipolar or for something like that or die there's now diabetes i understand because there's a there is just such a boom in diabetes drugs and there's all kinds of different things out there but the challenge and i'm married to a primary care physician so i'm i'm a little biased on this is that i think the doctors should be making the decision along with their patients on what they should take not the patients pushing for a certain drug well there are a couple of ways to approach that question the first is uh, doctors are not inappropriately 
giving patients drugs they don't need because a patient saw an ad. That's the most important thing. But in, in 30% of uh, doctor's visits that are driven by a patient seeing an ad, a doctor actually diagnoses a previously undiagnosed condition, and, that, and that's incredibly important. Also, you know, relative to pricing, you know, drugs that advertise more than others in their same class don't cost any more. So just, it's not impacting the price to the patient, but it does, in fact, create a more engaged patient. Does that, does that annoy some physicians? It certainly does. <laughs> you know, should patients, you know, not pretend to uh, be, be educated through advertising on the Internet? They, they definitely should. But, you know, at the end of the day, anything that generates a patient visiting a doctor, uh, I think is a good thing. Okay, well, we, we may talk more about that because I just have a problem with the level of dollars being spent compared to research and development dollars. But I'll, we'll hold that thought, and we'll talk about well, that well, another actually, time. I, well, I, well, well, actually, uh, but, but since, you, since you teed it up, let me tell you that you know, the, the amount of money, the hundreds of billions of dollars spent on R&D dwarfs the money spent on advertising. Okay. All right, good. That's good to know because I've seen other reports on that. So that's good to know. So if people want to know more about and get more engaged about how we make our drugs and how we make them here, is there a vehicle to do that? Well, two two places to go. First, obviously, is, is the FDA website, which is FDA.gov. They do a lot of really tremendous work, and their website's gotten a lot better for the average consumer. And also, I'd invite people to come to our website, which is cmpi.org. We spend a lot of time trying to translate these issues into uh, language that the average person can understand. And you do think that over time, it wouldn't be a bad direction for us to go in to try to make more stuff in total here in the United States, especially if they're basic needs. I think strategically, we got to figure out which products need to be prioritized and ensure that we've got a supply to the drugs and to the component parts of those drugs. Absolutely. Peter Pitts, it's cmpi.org where you can get that information. You can also get information for the public at fda.gov. Thanks for being with me today. My pleasure. Have a good day. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. Rod Huey's here with me today, and we're also talking to David Loyne. David Loyne is a former BBC reporter. He covered the war in Afghanistan for more than 20 years. He's written three or four books. I've read three. There may be four books on Afghanistan. Uh, and the last one's called The Long War. And we've talked to him several times last year, and we're getting back together with him today. David, welcome back. How are you? Great to be with you, Martha. Thank you. Okay, so tell us why this um, getting of this al-Qaeda leader was important, and what does it mean, if you have any idea, of where we are right now in Afghanistan? So Ayman al-Zawahiri took over al-Qaeda when Osama bin Laden uh, was killed in 2011. And uh, he was the emir. He was the leader of the movement. And a lot of people had been writing about al-Qaeda in recent months, saying that actually they were more prominent than they'd been. Um, they went quiet for a long time. And one of the reasons, of course, for their capacity to be more prominent was because they were given shelter um, and support by the Taliban. And now we know not just shelter and support by the Taliban, but uh, right in the center of Kabul. The house where he was killed um, was in 
and it was just along the road from uh, from the British Embassy. It was very close to where I used to live when I was the BBC correspondent there, right in downtown Kabul, in a house um, uh, that had previously actually, I think, been rented by uh, American aid workers uh, um, before the fall of Kabul uh, a year ago this weekend. So it was uh, very much a, a place right in the centre of town, very visible. He apparently didn't come out of the house much. But the key significance of this is that that house is now under the control of Sirajuddin Haqqani, the uh, interior minister of the Taliban. And this shows that the Taliban have not stuck to any of the commitments they made to the Biden administration for um, American troops to leave last year. And it's pretty amazing how they were able to do this, how we were able to do this, where um, there was basically no collateral damage. It was we just took him out and that's about it. They're pretty impressive weapons that they have now. I think, you know, from what we're hearing, the readouts that we're hearing, um, the CIA had good eyes on him for a while. Um, they knew that he was, uh, they knew it was him. They knew it was just him on the balcony. It's a very small, very highly targeted device from a, from a drone. We understand, and I've been hearing this from a number of Afghans, that there have been a lot of drones in the sky over Afghanistan in recent weeks, particularly in the east of the country. So, and this could only be the United States um, uh, looking uh, continuing to look for, for people like al-Zawahiri, continuing to, since the Taliban are not keeping to their side of the bargain for American troops to leave, and they wouldn't uh, back international terrorists. Um, this is uh, the Biden administration, if you like, um, carrying out those, those commitments for them. Now, um, last time we talked, you said there was some evidence of a possible resistance in the northern part of Afghanistan. Now, that was several months ago. Is there anything like that going on? There are a number of different resistance groups, Martha. It's been quite interesting. I think none of them have, have had quite the traction that the NRF, the, the, the main one, the, uh, the, the Northern Resistance Front was expecting to have, National Resistance Front was expecting to have at the beginning. Um, they haven't taken a huge amount of ground, but they do control some very remote districts. Um, and as well as the, the NRF fighting, there are a number of other groups. There's a group fighting in the Uzbek uh, areas in the northwest. Uh, there is a former uh, Taliban commander, uh, Mehdi Mujahid, who's a Hazara, in fact, not a Pashtun, not from the Taliban tribe. He turned against them again and with his militias, and he has been fighting against them. Uh, now, the Taliban, of course, send their best forces to put down these insurrections um, when they happen, but there are a lot of them happening, and there are a lot of militias around the country who are unhappy with the with the Taliban government, and I think one of the key significances of the uh, Al Zawahiri death is that a number of uh, Taliban groups, and th this is a coalition of factions, it's not just one organisation. A number of groups within the Taliban, particularly one led by Mullah Yaqub, the son of the founder of the of the movement, um, are very unhappy with the Haqqani network um, sheltering Al Qaeda. And the fact that, uh, that this, is, this has happened, that, it, that this has brought another American attack, has empowered those groups. And we're hearing those groups much more strongly in recent days saying, well, look, you know, we must, uh, we must deal with the Haqqanis. And, I mean, some analysts I've been talking to, Afghan analysts who know this situation very well, are talking about the potential for more of a civil war within the Taliban, not just insurgents fighting against the Taliban, but the Taliban themselves um, facing internal violence um, because of the support for al-Qaeda. 
Well, certainly, you know, NATO has had its own um, things happening in the last year with Ukraine and Russia and expanding NATO and that sort of thing. But as it relates to Afghanistan, is it basically the United States that is trying to enforce order as much as possible? I mean, obviously, we're not there anymore, but you said there's drones in the skies. It's that kind of thing. Is this mostly a United States operation keeping an eye on what's happening there? Yeah, it's what's what they called over-the-horizon capability. I mean, as well as the CIA, there's a very significant American military presence in the Gulf, and that's where this, um, you know, the over-the-horizon so-called uh, presence is, is managed from. But this must have involved um, significant intelligence on the ground. It must potentially have involved um, uh, sources within the Taliban themselves. Um, and, of course, as I say, there are groups within the Taliban who don't want al-Qaeda to be hosted. So... You know, we could now be seeing some Taliban groups giving um, information to the United States, which is, an, which is, you know, would be a real turnaround in a sense. But no, this is just an American-led operation. There are no other NATO countries involved in this kind of, of military activity. And in fact, the rest of the, the world has turned its back on Afghanistan. And um, women's groups that I've talked to are really in despair, actually, that they're not being properly supported. Um, the U.S. has set up a sort of consultative committee um, but they haven't uh, done a huge amount to support those groups, to support civil society resilience, to support media groups, the kinds of groups that could give Afghan society itself the ability to, to stand up for itself, not military aid, but civilian aid, social, social support for, for groups that uh, don't require a huge amount of money but do require some money in, it in order to be able to continue. But that support's not been coming. So I think there's a real sense in Afghanistan um, that they were abandoned last year by the United States. They were betrayed by the Biden administration. Um, and uh, and the, since uh, leaving the country, you know, apart from this uh, violence, uh, this one strike now, um, there's been sort of real uh, a real sense from, uh, from the United States that there's not been that much activity inside Afghanistan itself. Now, there are some officials, Tom West, the head of the Afghan desk at USAID is, you know, is hardworking um, individual who has a good team who are trying to do what they can. But without the administration, you know, beyond them really believing that Afghanistan matters, and I don't think President Biden believes that it does, um, there's not going to be the kind of um, attention that the country requires. And the danger is that when Afghanistan is not attended to, it tends to slip back into terrorist violence. And uh, we saw that in the 1990s, and of course we've seen Syria collapsing in this way in more recent years. So, um, you know, I think I'm, 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 my fear is that if Afghanistan is once again abandoned, once again ignored, um, that it could sort of collapse back into some kind of, of civil war. And that's leading to, of course, you know, um, more refugees fleeing from the region, leading to ungoverned space, and we know what happens then. You have organizations like al-Qaeda who plan international terrorist attacks living in that kind of ungoverned space. Well, and USAID is one of those unsung heroes, really, where they don't have much of a budget in the scheme of things, but mm. the work they do is impressive and really keeps boots off the ground in many cases. So that's no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, I mean, and, and there's been, of course, a huge amount of humanitarian aid, and thank you to American taxpayers for, you know, for that, for for keeping 20 million people, uh, Afghans alive during the winter um, through the World Food Program in particular, which, of course, is mostly funded by the U.S. Um, so, and, uh, one, so I think... 
David, you know, there is that support. And I wanted to ask you, you alluded to it about women, but have they lost everything that they gained over the 20 years that we were there? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's some pretty awful stories. Yes, is the answer. Um, more than 30 social restrictions have been counted by women's activist group. The most recent, um, and, you know, so this is in your situation, Martha, um, you'd be told you, you have a job announcing, presenting a great radio show. You'd be told you can't come to work tomorrow. You have to send a male member of your family to do this, to do the show. Um, otherwise, you lose the job. Um, that's happened in Afghanistan now. People in government service, in government jobs, have been told that they um, have to send a male member of their family. Um, they can't attend the work to do the kind of work that they're doing that they're qualified for. Um, so this is sort of insanity, really. And there have been, there've been um, lots and lots of cases of um, couples uh, who are you know, found not to be married. You know, one, one story of a couple at a checkpoint, a man and a woman, I say a couple, a man and a woman who were work colleagues in a car together found at, found at a Taliban checkpoint. Um, and when they were discovered that they weren't married, um, Taliban took them out of the car, killed them, and their mutilated bodies were found the next day. Um, women, uh, people taken in so-called adultery have been stoned to death. Those kinds of punishments have returned in Afghanistan. So, it's a pretty frightening place for women, and um, the, the worst of it is that um, there had been real progress over the last 20 years, and not just in the cities, in the countryside as well, in rural locations. Afghan women have different expectations to their mothers, and that's um, a change. It's a change. I think it's a bit of a shock for the Taliban when they took power and saw what was happening in the country, but it also means um, that the... The shock of the change now of the social restrictions that are being imposed, women not being allowed to work, just being told to stay at home, not allowed to travel without a male member of their family present, um, all these kind of mad ideas which are um, preventing women from carrying out normal lives um, are much more of a shock than they would previously have been because of the significant social progress that's been made over the last 20 years. David Loyne, the book is The Long War. Uh, we're coming up on that Afghanistan anniversary, and we appreciate your time today. It's always great. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Martha. Bye. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Let's talk to Lisa Wexler. Um uh, there was a fact check on that, Lisa, related to, I don't know if you could hear the question about whether the judge was actually appointed by Donald Trump. Um, let me let me clarify that. It's really very interesting. It's one of the first things great. that I Thank you. dug into. Sure. So what it is is that this is not a district judge. So a district judge would be appointed by the Senate and the president. In other words, appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Yes. This is something called a judge magistrate. Now, he was, this did happen during 2018 when Donald Trump was president. Um, so, so it was during the Trump administration. So it may have been somebody with Trump's tacit approval. But, in he, fact, judge magistrates are approved by the district judges in the circuit in Florida. Got it. Got it. So he was not appointed by Donald Trump. Okay. He was not appointed by Donald Trump. He was not directly chosen by Donald Trump, but he was appointed during a Republican administration by the federal judges in the circuit in Florida. Now, he also has some connections to the Epstein case, right? 
You know, I saw that headline, too, in the New York Post. you got to love the New York Post headline. Yes. And the only connection that he has, it's really not fair, in my opinion, is that after being a very, very, almost a lifetime prosecutor for various agencies in the federal government, he did what many people do, which is he switched sides to make money for a change, and he went into the white-collar criminal defense area. As a white-collar criminal defense attorney, he represented some clients, who were somehow caught up in the Jeffrey Epstein mess. But there were a lot of them. And in my opinion, as a lawyer, you can't tarnish a lawyer for who they represent in defense. I agree. We are entitled to have a defense in America. I agree with that. There are a lot of lawyers that give great defenses. And, you know, Shondell Summer, who sits in with me on Fridays, her husband was an amazing, he's passed away now, but he was an amazing defense attorney. And he took on a lot of, you know, challenging cases uh but tried to give the best defense to his clients and so that's and people are entitled to that in america that's 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 right what we have in america so so i don't think that that was particularly fair i wanted to ask you the question because i know you're a judge as well as a lawyer so this there's a lot of talk about the warrant that happened in this mar-a-lago i guess you'd call it a raid i mean there were 30 fbi agents so it was a pretty big thing what is involved how does an attorney or the Justice Department or anybody present Im- an information to get a warrant to be able to go in somewhere. Okay, so that unfortunately is not my area, right? Okay. There are lawyers that do a lot of areas. I've never done criminal prosecution. Uh, but generally speaking, they they literally write up um, they write up uh, they write up almost like a, a complaint, it looks like. Like, have you ever read arrest warrants before? They look like they're, they're typically in an affidavit form, and they're signed in a way in which somebody says, this, to the best of my information and belief, are the facts as I know them to be. Right. And then they, they list them down, one through 100, all the facts, all the facts. And then they go in front of a judge, and they present it to a judge, and they say, based on these, can you agree with me that there is probable cause to be able to have me do the next step in an investigation, which is go for a search. Mm. Right. So they're so they're looking for probable the cause. Process, but but they have to show usually that the judge uh, when a judge decides that a warrant has is ready to be issued, it's a it, that's the standard probable cause, which is to say better than fifty percent. That the facts, if they were proven to be true, would in fact be something that would be a criminal violation. So, it, you know, it's not anything close to beyond a reasonable doubt because you're at such an early stage of an investigation. Right. So it's probable cause. Probable, probable cause. Got it. Got it. So in general, what do you think about what you've observed related to this event that happened at Mar-a-Lago earlier this week? So it's been percolating, right? And uh, this morning I was talking with my producer and I, what I believe to be independently came up with a thought that five minutes later I read in an op-ed piece in today's New York Times. And this is what I think, Martha. I think that this is a situation where the public is entitled to know what the Justice Department was looking for. I agree. You know, a lot of a lot of times our Justice Department um, hides behind a general policy that because they're involved in an investigation, they don't want to tell us anything. But there are exceptions to the rule, 
And these circumstances demand that an exception be made. I agree with you about that because I think this is this is a really weird thing because Republicans who like Trump and don't like Trump think are uncomfortable about what happened. Democrats are uncomfortable about what happened and independents are uncomfortable because on the outside it just doesn't look good regardless of who it was on the other side of that door. You know what I'm saying? It reminded me and I know this has nothing to do with it. Okay? This is a completely different kind of case, but it reminded me of the use of force they did in the Elian Gonzalez case in the 90s where you know where they went in with this overwhelming force, took this kid out and sent him back to Cuba. It's not exactly the same thing, but it it reminded me the level of force they used that probably didn't need to be used. That was also in Florida, by yes, the way. Yes, it was in Florida. Um, a lot of strange things happened down in Florida, by the way. Um, I just think, you know, the the James Comey, when he did what he did with the emails, he had to make that gratuitous statement against Hillary Clinton that obviously Hillary Clinton lived to hate him for. But Donald Trump hated him, too. Pretty much everybody hated James (laughs) Comey for the way in which he was perceived to have done his job. I mean, that's true. I mean, there was equal opportunity hatred against this guy because he was because he was accused of um, being biased or, or being slanted or being too opinionated. Maybe that's fair Too opinionated in the way he was characterizing some facts that were coming across his desk. Merrill Garland doesn't have to do it that way. He doesn't have to be opinionated, but we as the public are entitled to know. Were they really going after classified documents that the National Archives people said that he had taken away? And if so, classified with a big C? Are we talking about documents that nobody should ever have a chance to take a look at? That no president should ever be allowed to walk out of a White House with? Or are we talking about something on a lesser level than that? I think the American people deserve to know what they were looking for. I really do. Lisa Wexler, that's what I love about talking with you is that we always, uh, we may be on different sides of issues, but on the core morality of issues, meaning that we have the right to know we always are on the same page. Lisa, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.